good morning. We're uh, in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be picking it up in the 14th verse today. And as we've been studying through Acts, we've seen that uh, with the title of the series, The Church on Earth, we've seen that Acts really is the story of the church on earth, that um, we see the church being planted, the church spreading, people coming to know God, and we're given the foundation really for Christianity, the, the doctrine of the New Testament that shows us how the Old Testament is played out um, in reality. Chapter 2. Um, and the title of today's message is Whom God Raised Up. Whom God Raised Up. And we're going to see why, uh, hopefully, uh, by the end of our time together today. But Acts, the word is praxeus in Greek. It, it was used for kings and people of high stature when they would write down what these guys did they would say the acts of king so-and-so the acts of the president the acts of congress the acts of some famous person but i think it's interesting that luke chose the word acts here and really god chose through luke the word acts for the the acts of peter and paul the apostles and the believers in the new testament and ultimately us because the only difference between those believers and us is a bunch of time you know they believe in the same Jesus, and we'll see that um, you know, the things that they did are the things that God would have us do as well. It was written by Luke. It was written around AD 63, so around 30 years after uh, Jesus uh, went to the cross. Last week, we looked at uh, Pentecost and how the Holy Spirit came down and was for everyone at this time. That Jesus said, I'll no longer leave you as orphans and widows, but now that I've sent the Holy Spirit to you, that you may have a helper and a companion. And this was really just a fulfillment of what Jesus said. And it's a special time. It's a different time. You know, that this is the age of the church. This is the age of grace where we're given um, opportunities and we're given freedoms that people in history didn't have, um, especially before the cross. But this week, we're going to look at the first part of the message that Peter delivers by the Holy Spirit. You know, we see Peter in the garden trying to cut off that guy's ear. Um, he's probably trying to cut off his head, but he missed and got his ear. And that was not what God wanted for them. He wanted to call down fire on people. Uh, he even, a couple weeks ago, as we looked, when they were waiting and doing their own thing, they decided to try and figure out who the next apostle was. And uh, it wasn't exactly God's plan, as we'll see uh, when Paul is called. But really, this week, there's a difference. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to expound on the scriptures and prophesy and share with these people who needed to know about God um, in a way that uh, they could relate to and understand. Uh, but next week, hopefully, we'll look at the conclusion of Peter's message and the results of God doing the work. Uh, Lord, again, we just ask that you would speak to us in your word and bless this time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, verse 14, we're going to read the 21 uh, of Acts chapter 2. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And my men servants, and on my men servants, and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood 
before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It says in here in verse 14 that Peter, he stood up with the 11. So whether that's the 11 him included or the 11, the 11 guys, including uh, who they chose, uh, but he stands up with them. You know, they, they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other languages last week. And we saw that they shared, it wasn't last week to them, it was last week to us, <laughs> that he began to share um, uh, the wonderful works of God. It says that this was the message that they began to share in all these other languages that people could understand who were around them. And they thought they were drunk, as we'll see here in a minute. They thought that the sound coming out of them was like, what's going on? You know, it's a feast week. Maybe they're out late partying and it's still going on. But what's going on? This is strange. They didn't understand it. But he says, heed my words. He said, let this be known to you and heed my words in verse 14. I think it's important that, you know, we hear and we also listen. Because it's, it's one thing just to listen. You know, you can hear a lot of things throughout the day and we've learned how to tune things in and out. Um, you know, our brain works very interestingly where we can begin to focus on certain sounds when we're in a, a group of people. And some people can as you get older and sometimes you need a hearing aid to fix these things. But when we hear something... And we listen to really hear and to really listen is to let it sink in, to consider it, to let it go down and really understand what is being said and not just hear it. Um, I don't know if you guys remember Charlie Brown where the mom would talk or whoever it was and it would sound like a trumpet, you know, maybe it's droning on. And I think sometimes when we listen to the word of God, maybe, you know, we've read the Bible a few times, maybe we've been doing our devotions for many years and we get and we get into the word of God and it's just, we get through it. We read it, we've read the words, we know what the words say, but maybe we didn't really listen and we didn't really hear. And, um, but that's not what Peter's saying here today. He's saying, heed them. We need to listen to them. That these people aren't drunk. They're not drunk. Check it out. That what these people are saying is not the result of having a cocktail. It's not the result of being up and partying all night. It's the result of a different spirit altogether. I think it's interesting that these people, uh, some of them wanted to know more and understand what was going on, and the other half mocked and said they were drunk. But what a fleshly response to a work of God. You know, people will hear the words of God. They'll come to church, per se, or they'll maybe hear something that you share with them at work or at a party or when you're hanging out with your friends or family. And some may be interested, you know, especially in a hard time. You know, we have a hard situation going on with our family, and, uh, but God has been using it, and some people have been opened up to the, the things of God. But I've been around other times when people hear it and they go, no, that's crazy, or you're just as drunk as you used to be. And that's a fleshy response. You know, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 16 says, Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And this is the Apostle Paul sharing that when we begin to speak spiritual things, when we begin to read the Bible as believers, we begin to understand it in a way that maybe we didn't understand it before we came to know the Lord. Because we can't understand the things of God if we don't have the Spirit of God. You know, God is so much greater than us, so much more intelligent, so much more powerful. How could we simply understand the things of God unless He came down 
and made them simple and plain for us. And I think that that's what God is going to do through Peter uh, in this message. Make this message of these wonderful works of God plain and applicable and able to be heard and listened to. But he says the third hour, and that's 9 a.m. You know, I don't think the apostles were drunk then. They weren't. But maybe some people do get drunk that early in the morning. <laughs> You know, at my job, they have this closet that's full of beer, and I don't partake in it or anything, but every Friday or so, or any excuse, there will be coming an announcement. It's kind of funny. They're like, the closet's open, and people go up and get a beer. It's like, it's, it's a really laid-back place to work, really professional. They do great work. But, you know, that's the sort of thing. And, you know, I'll hang out. I'll talk to people. They've had cocktails and stuff before, and I'll hang out with them. But, you know, I'm not drinking or anything. But, man, I, you know, <laughs> it's usually at, like, 4.30 in the day when this goes on. Um, <laughs> Even even the world knows that getting drunk kind of nine in the morning is, you know, outside of college age kids is is uh, is not acceptable. And even the college age kids is foolish. But I think you get what I'm saying there. But this is what they're accusing these believers of being drunk in the morning, being drunk in the morning. But uh, I have to wonder, you know, are we saving God's spirit for the end of the day? Or are we willing to get drunk in God in the morning? I think, you know, just like maybe you wouldn't want to go to class or you wouldn't want to go to work drunk because you know the effects of it, but you don't mind going through the night that way. I think sometimes when it comes to God's spirit, maybe we're afraid of getting a little quote-unquote drunk in the spirit in the morning because we know we'll be different at work. We know we might end up sharing with that coworker. We, mo- we know we might act a little differently in traffic. And maybe we don't want to deal with that. And maybe I'm just speaking about myself. But, <laughs> but he says that um, Joel's prophecy is fulfilled. He says in, in verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And I think it's interesting. Peter says, listen and heed my words. I don't know if Peter was literate or not. You know, we see that the book of Mark was possibly Peter's gospel written down by Mark. So maybe Peter as a fisherman wasn't literate. Maybe he knows Joel's word um, from going to temple. Maybe his parents taught it to him with stories. I don't know. Maybe he was literate. I don't know what, it, what it, the story really was. But it's interesting that he knows these scriptures now, that he's not calling down fire from heaven, but instead, under the power of the Holy Spirit, he's bringing up scripture. And he's showing how Old Testament scripture is actually being fulfilled right then and there. And how awesome would it be for you and me to to know a Bible verse, be walking out our life and go, wait a minute, the Bible scripture is being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. But he says that this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel And the first thing he says from the prophet Joel is that it shall come to pass in the last days. And Peter's saying it's being fulfilled right then, 2,000 years ago, that the last days are happening 2,000 years ago. That's pretty impressive because if it was the last days at Pentecost, how much more is it the last days now? 2,000 years of days have passed and it's still the last days. So no doubt we are in the last days. And if you're interested, this is Joel 2, 28 through 32. But verse 17 says that it says God. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God. And how important is that? It wasn't just the prophet Joel waxing philosophical. It was God saying through the prophet Joel that in the last days his spirit would be poured out. And that's what prophecy is, guys. God speaking. It's God speaking. It's not us being clever or learning what to say, but it's God himself speaking. You know, um, whether it's through a message whether it's through your own personal time, maybe a friend gives you a Bible verse or just says something and speaks something into your life. Maybe it's a word of knowledge. You know, the other night, I don't know why I was thinking it, but the thought popped in my head to post something on Facebook, which I did it, about why do all my friends want to post naked pictures of themselves on the internet. And I don't necessarily mean naked, but 
naked. You know, you're wearing less clothes than you would anywhere else to the mall or the supermarket. And lo and behold, there was someone that we know who posted something like similar to that on Instagram the next day. And I'm not going to necessarily say something to this person, and my wife wanted to, but she doesn't really have a close enough relationship to, to say something. But man, I don't know if it was prophecy. I don't know if it's just the signs of the times. But really, sometimes these things happen. Sometimes God will give us a thought or a word to say to somebody, or sometimes we'll just know something is going on. And that's a little bit different than prophecy, but I think sometimes saying, seeing these things come to pass before they be um, can be prophecy. Um, but prophecy, it's really the idea of foretelling future events pertaining especially to the kingdom of God. To utter forth, declare a thing which can only be known by divine revelation, even praise. Uh, or it's also to act as a prophet, discharge the prophetic office. I think it's interesting that prophecy is, is, is in one sense, speaking forth the God of word. In one sense, this is prophecy. I'm speaking forth God's word. In the other sense, prophecy of future events, where like where you read revelation of things that haven't happened yet per se, that's prophecy, future events that God has foretold. And the way to tell if a future prophecy is true or a prophet is of God, well, does it come to pass? Does it come to pass? A lot of people say that they're prophets. They say something, and then it doesn't come to pass. In the Old Testament, God said to do what? Stone them. <laughs> it was that important to God to not mess around with was saying, you're saying God's words. But it can also be praise, I think, which is interesting that, you know, I have some friends who are definitely gifted with uh, leading worship and being a worship leader. You know, there's a difference between playing music and being a worship team and being the guy or girl who heads it up. But that that's also prophecy in a sense that, like, when you read a lot of the Psalms, there's prophecy in those Psalms, and they can be songs, and they can be poetry. But there's also this office of a prophet that where this person, sort of like Jeremiah or Isaiah, or maybe even you might think someone like Billy Graham or something like that, even though he's an evangelist, he has this office that someone else in this nation didn't have for a while. You know, we read Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, 1 through 10 says, To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It, also, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the king, son of Zedekiah, king of Zedekiah, etc., etc., etc. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, said Jeremiah, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. That Jeremiah was one of God's prophets. That God said, You're going to speak what I want you to speak. That you're going to go forward and say these things. And that God put his hand on him and he had this office to go and set up things in the nation and tear things down in the nation. And I think in the same sense, that's for us as believers, that believers in some sense are all prophets because we're going forth. And especially in this day and age, if we're adhering to what the Bible says and living out and believing what the Bible says, even in some small part, we're prophesying, we're speaking forth the things of God because the world isn't saying the same uh, opinions about situations that the Bible says. The world is saying the complete opposite. So if we're speaking the things that the Bible is saying to the world, we're in a sense prophesying. We're speaking God's plans and God's words. But he says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. You know, young men are given visions, the future. I think a lot of young men, young men and women really, uh, especially teenagers, you know, doing youth group for so many years, getting to see God's hand on these kids' lives where kids' lives would get, they'd get saved, they'd get changed, they'd even become, one of my good friends who got, who was a kid when he got saved and was in youth group as a worship leader now. Um, but seeing this, God's hand on, on these kids' lives and giving them visions for the future and what to do. And I think it's interesting that in, God gives visions to the young people. God puts it in the heart of young people stuff to go out and do in the future. Whether it's a vision per se of something uh, very spiritual, almost like a daydream where God will give them a vision. Or whether it's a vision of, man, I want to see God do these things that I know he wants to do. And I want to be a part of the plan and the purpose that lives these things out. That gives them a vision, something to follow, a, a direction to go as a young person. And I think that that's so important, especially in our day and age when um, the world is coming against young people and destroying them at an early age, that young people would see the vision of God and hear the vision of God and want to follow that out and want to follow that their whole life. And I'd say, in a sense, we're all young if we can all get up and walk and go forth and go out and do things. But he says that um, uh, they're daughters too. Um, Philip had daughters in Acts 21, 9, we'll read that they went out and prophesied that it's not just young men, it's young women as well. And I've known a lot of young women who are very spiritual and more so per se maybe than some of the young guys. Maybe they get it a little bit easier. But that's not just a, a man-dominated thing. You know, we don't see any female prophets in the Old Testament, but at the cross we're all one. You know, there's no male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're all one in Jesus. Maybe we have different roles, but God gives these gifts to everyone. And he says here that the old men, they dream dreams. And I think maybe when you're old, that's all you can do. God's not going to give you a vision for the future because you're old and you've only got a few years left to live. So he gives them dreams, maybe to inspire others, maybe to give themselves hope in old age when, they, when carrying out a vision may not be possible. You know, I've heard of people who are uh, older in the faith who can't go anywhere, but they spend their time in prayer. They spend their time praying for people, going places that they couldn't go physically. They're going to go spiritually. You know, a lot, I met a lot of people in New York who were older when they came to faith. White hair old, coming to faith. Um, you know, my wife's uh, parents got saved. They're not that old. They're, you know, they're only in their 50s. But they got saved. You know, in a relative course of time, they say most people get, get saved by their 20s. And if that doesn't happen, it's pretty rare. But I've seen God doing a lot of that in these last days. I've seen a lot of old people, quote-unquote old people, get saved, even older than that, even in their 70s. And I've seen, I remember this one lady, Mary, who, man, she gets saved, she gets baptized, so on fire for God, she's got this Irish accent. But I'm like, man, if, if half of us had the fire she had in our 20s or our 30s or our 40s, what could we do? I feel like in some sense, this lady who's in her 70s is going to do more in, in the next three years of her life, per se, if she were to pass away, than some of us might do in 30 years. And I think that, man, that's, that's the way it should be. But he says that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, that it's God's spirit. It's God's spirit who's giving these visions. It's God's spirit who's giving these dreams. It's God's spirit who's enabling uh, the disciples and the apostles and the believers to go out and do these things. And I think it's interesting that prophecy is a direct result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's the one doing it. Yes, we saw them speak in different languages, different tongues last week, that the others who spoke different languages in the area might understand. 
But that was the end result, that tongues was sort of the open door to let the prophecy flow out to these people. You know, the gift of tongues was to enable the prophecies, the fulfillment to be understood. It's not some unintelligible tongue here. You know, it's probably hard enough to sit here for 45, 15 minutes and listen to me teach, but imagine if I was speaking a totally different language, or even a language that doesn't even exist. If I was just blah, 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 for 45 minutes, you'd all be really nuts to be sitting here. I mean, you're pretty crazy to be sitting here in the first place, but you'd be really nuts to be sitting here for that long. And that's the problem, is that tongues are good. There's one type of tongue where we speak another language, but there's another type of tongue where it's a heavenly language and there's only a heavenly interpretation. But this really abused a lot. You know, and abuse of tongues gets me very angry. Abuse of any gift really gets me angry. And I hope it's a righteous anger like Jesus flipping over the tables. But come on, it makes a mockery of God, his spirit, the gifts, and prevents people from coming to him. Let's see. Let's turn... We're not going to cover too many verses in Acts today, but let's just turn to 1 Corinthians 14 real quick. And I'm going to read a chunk of it and try not to comment. But I think it's interesting that Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 um, really the use of gifts. And sandwiched in between all that is, is love, you know, the famous chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 about love. But let's listen and see just how clear it is on the use of these different gifts in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 33. And this is a chunk, so I'm going to read through it, and we'll get through it. But pursue love, Paul says, and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. You know, if you remember, Corinthian church was a messed up church. It's very interesting that this church was very fleshly, got wrapped up in, in uh, a gift that was kind of over, uh, it can be misused in the flesh very easily. Verse 6, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether the flute or the harp, or they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he might interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say, Amen? At your giving of thanks, it's he does not understand what you say. He's basically saying, if you're going to sing a song, sing it intelligible. If you want to sing to God in a tongue, do it in private. 
Because that way, people who are around who don't understand will be able to agree with you and be able to sing along with you. Verse 17, For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people. And yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, like we're seeing here in Acts. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but those who believe, like we're about to see in Acts. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if you prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in and he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. And a few more verses here. How then is it, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three, each in turn, and let no one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches and all the saints. You know that Paul is very clear on the use of tongues and on the use of gifts in the church, and, and what the purpose of that is, that people might come to know God. That's the point, that people might come to know God. I believe we all know God in this room. Imagine if someone came in who doesn't know God, and we're all just babbling our heads off. They would probably go, this is really weird. I'm out of here. But imagine they hear, uh, hopefully, a Bible teaching that makes some sense. Imagine they hear godly conversation before and after that makes some sense, or you share with them a verse, and it makes sense to them, and they get convicted. Man, that would be a difference in their lives. You know, we had some family members who went to a church like that, and it was they came away going, it was weird. I was kind of weirded out. I was like, good. Even the Bible says you'll be weirded out by it. <laughs> but anyway, soapbox. Verse 19 and 20, back in Acts. He says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, this passage in Joel is talking about the end times. It's talking that God is going to pour out his spirit. After God pours out his spirit, he's going to pour out these signs in the heaven and on earth with judgment. And that the only thing that has to be done to be saved is the call on the name of God. You know, that's the crux of the message of the outpour of the spirit and this prophesying. It's not, you're all going to hell, you're all going to burn, fire and brimstone. But really, God's going to pour out his spirit, just like it was told. The end is going to come, and there is judgment coming, but there's a way out of it, and it's easy. You just call on the name of Jesus. You know, all would be saved. They would just call on Jesus. You know, it's simple. It's that simple. I think we complicate it, and I especially think that when we try and work up the gifts of God and come up with a message and fire and brimstone to try and get people saved, it's maybe it works, but maybe there's a better way. 
You know, it, it wasn't a pronouncement of judgment, but it was a pronouncement of a way out of judgment. That yes, judgment is coming. The Spirit's not going to avoid that one because that's a big one. But the whole point of sharing that judgment is coming is that there's a way out of judgment, that Jesus took that judgment. You know, John 16, 7 through 15 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I'll send him to you, which we've seen here in Pentecost, of sin, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, Jesus says. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes what's of Jesus's and declares it to us. That's his role. He wants us to know what Jesus says. He wants us to know who Jesus is, and he does that. You know, he says here that he uses conviction of sin to combat unbelief. He says, of sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit goes out into the world. As you and I know, before we got saved, we really enjoyed sin. Maybe we enjoy it a little bit now, or we hate it now, or different things. But we used to sin and love it. But at some point, we started getting convicted over that. At some point, we began to go, oh, yeah, this is wrong, and I still keep doing it, and how do I get out of this? That's God convicting us, saying what we're doing is wrong. And that's how he fights unbelief. He doesn't come in there with this theological argument, let's go toe-to-toe, not there's anything wrong with apologetics. But the Holy Spirit says, okay, you don't believe? Well, let's take a look at the sin in your life. Let's take a look at what's really right and what's really wrong, and let's bring conviction in your life, because as he begins to prick the heart, The mind begins to change. It begins to understand. But he also convicts the unrighteous that righteousness exists. And how does he do that? Through a theological argument? No, he simply does it. He says, Jesus is in heaven. Where's Jesus? Is Jesus in the Watchtower Society? Is Jesus in the White House? No, he's in heaven. Maybe we have a tomb somewhere. Maybe there's some tomb that they have over in Israel they can go tour that might actually be the tomb. But Jesus isn't in it. The Catholic Church has a bunch of saints that you can go visit. You can probably go visit a a temple for Buddha or these other guys and and find something in there. Maybe we do have the shrouded torrent and that's really Jesus' face mask. But the point is, is that Jesus isn't there. We don't have his bones. We don't have his body. And And that's the conviction of righteousness, that God came to earth, he died on the cross, and he didn't stay dead. He rose again, and that says, hey, there's something more righteous than me that's out there. There's something more powerful than me that's out there. There's something more powerful than any government in the world that's out there. Jesus defeated sin. He also convicts those that are hardened by sin that judgment is coming. And he says, uh, of judgment because of the ruler of this world is judged. You know that Jesus took our judgment on the cross. God does not want you and I to go through judgment. He does not want us to have to taste judgment or feel it at all. That's why the cross came. That's why we took communion before. Because remember that Jesus took our judgment. But he also says that Satan has an end. That the ruler of this world, the one who sways this whole world, has an end. And yeah, things are getting more wicked moment by moment. It's like I, I barely want to read the news or listen to the radio sometimes because it's like, wow, things are so wicked. I don't want my kids to go outside at all. <laughs> I don't want to go outside at all sometimes. But really that even though the world seems like it's winning that the ruler of this world and the world that follows him is going to be judged and it's coming soon and that there's an end and that he's already lost because of the cross and that's the difference, that he's lost. And really, because of that, God says, do you want to be on the winning side or do you want to be on the losing side? 
Sometimes it's that simple of an argument. And again, it says that the Holy Spirit doesn't even declare his own words. He declares what the Father says, what Jesus says. And I think, why would we declare our own words sometimes? Sometimes we want to come up with our own arguments. Sometimes we want to come up with our own ideas and say, well, this is what the Bible says and try and water it down and make it more palatable, so to speak. And sometimes we wonder why it doesn't have any effect. Well, really, that's because maybe we just need to say what God says in love and say, well, you don't have to hate me, but the Bible says this. The Bible says this is wrong and this is right and judgment is coming. But there's more to that, that Jesus loves you. You know, and that should be the end of any message that we give, that Jesus loves them, that when we share with someone who's our family or a friend, that, yeah, maybe sometimes we need to bring the hammer of God's word, but in it all, we're, man, God loves you. Don't miss the point that God loves you. Let's go on. Let's read 22 through 24. Men of Israel, uh, Peter says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Wow. You know, he says here that this is basically the middle of Peter's message here, these few verses, 20 through, through 24. And what does it center on? Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. You know, it says that Jesus was prophesied to come. You know, we have the whole Old Testament that God knew and planned everything. That Jesus coming to earth wasn't an accident. Jesus being born in the place he was born wasn't an accident. It was planned. Jesus living the life that he lived wasn't an accident. Jesus going to the cross wasn't an accident or it wasn't a secondary plan. It was God's primary plan for our salvation. In fact, Jesus, when he cried out in the garden the night before, goes, God, if there's any other way, would you free me from this? Would you free me from this? And God says, no, this is the way. And Jesus sweats blood. That Jesus wanted, there, in a sense, wanted there to be any other way. You know, if this isn't your perfect will, if this isn't the tiny, narrow road that you want me to be on, God, let it be another way. I think that's so important that, you know, sometimes our lives get hard. Sometimes the way gets narrow and it gets tough and it gets, man, God, is there any other way for me to have to go through this? Can I get out of this? And sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says it's time to sweat those tears of blood and those, those sweat drops of blood. Sometimes it's time for us to get arrested for doing something that we didn't want to do or we didn't do rather. But Jesus submitted himself to that. The God of heaven submitted himself to the cross. Um, and he knew that was the plan and he was a part of coming up with that plan. But it said that lawless hands crucified him. That when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't because of something he did. If we go to jail nine times out of 10, or if we get pulled over or arrested, Maybe five times out of ten. I don't know. <laughs> it's probably because we did something wrong. You know, the IRS, you know, comes knocking on your door. It's probably because you didn't pay your taxes. I mean, unless you're trying to start a conservative movement during election season, you know. <laughs> but I won't get too political. But seriously, like, usually when we get arrested for something or we get in trouble for something, most of the time it's because we did something wrong. Sometimes it's not. But Jesus didn't do anything wrong. And he went to the cross. He was death penalty. He didn't do anything wrong. It says that lawless hands crucified him. You know, the law didn't judge Jesus. There was no reason 
by the law for Jesus to be on the cross. He didn't break any law. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't say anything wrong. In fact, he did the opposite. He wasn't just, you know, neutral Jesus. He was good Jesus. He did good things. He was a good teacher. He was God. In fact, he fulfilled the law. You know, he fulfilled it. He didn't just obey it. He fulfilled it. He was what the law was pointing to, that there is someone perfect. Instead, it was lawbreakers who judged Jesus. It was the ones who couldn't fulfill the law, the ones who were burdened by the law, the ones who were trying to live by the law and putting burdens on others who crucified the one who actually fulfilled it. And they missed it. They missed it. And I think that's so true. Usually when, when someone points a finger at us, when we haven't done something wrong, when we're just sharing what the Bible says, or even just living a life, not drinking or not doing whatever, not that you can't drink, but you know what I mean? Like when our lives don't look like the way the world does because of our belief, and they begin to point fingers at us and judge us and, and look at us differently or treat us differently. It's not because we've done anything wrong, guys. I mean, maybe we need to look inside and say, hey, maybe I, maybe I wasn't totally loving to them. Maybe there's some of that in there. But really, we can get persecuted for doing the right thing. And I think more and more it's becoming obvious that that's going to happen here in America. But Peter simply told these guys the truth. He didn't come down on them, rip them apart, and pick every little thing that was wrong with them. He just simply told him the truth. He said, you guys are lawbreakers, and you crucified Jesus. That's simple. That's simple. He said who Jesus was, that he's God, he came to earth. He said what they did, that they, crossed, that they crucified him. Then he said what God did, that he raised them from the dead. That he didn't end there. He didn't end with their sin. He didn't end with them crucifying Jesus. He brought it to Jesus being raised up by God. That, yeah, we did something wrong. We crucified Jesus. You did something wrong. You put him on the cross. Your sin put him there. But God is more powerful than that. that you're not the end of the story. That God is the end of the story. It says, whom God raised up. Whom God raised up. That that is the end of the story. God raised Jesus up. Our sin is not the end of the story. It doesn't have to be the end of the story. God raised him up. You know, Romans 10, 8 through 11. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That is that simple. Believe in your heart that Jesus is God and God raised him from the dead. When you really believe it, it's going to come out of your mouth and you're going to say it if you have the ability to speak. And that God won't put you to shame. God's not going to put you to shame. You know, I think sometimes we don't want to confess to God our sin because we're so ashamed of it and we don't want to deal with it and we'd rather just put it under the rug. But God says, you can confess it to me and not have to feel shame when you confess it to me. I mean, you're going to feel shame and that's why you bring it to him. But as soon as you give it to him, you don't have to feel ashamed of it anymore. In some sense, you know, you need to repent and not go back to it and not use it as an excuse for sin, as Paul would say. But really, the point is that God does not want us to feel shame over anything anymore because he took even the shame away. But that's all the faith is, is that believing who Jesus is and who God says he is, he's a payment for our sins, and that he's alive. That God raised him from the dead, that there was a resurrection that took place. I think it's great that that verse says it was not possible that, she, that he should be held by it. It's not possible that Jesus would be held by death. You know, there's that saying that goes around by maybe unbelievers or scoffers, can God make a rock too big for him to lift? You know, if God is all-powerful and he can do anything, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No, you fool. <laughs> rock is physical. God is spiritual. God's bigger. But you know what? God can do the impossible. 
That rock that's so big that even God couldn't lift, well, he could lift it, and it was death, because death can't hold him down. You know, 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 58 says, we're going to close here in a minute. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, talking about us, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know that, that we, as people, need to put on the incorruption of God. We can't just walk around and try and make ourselves better. We literally, like Paul says, we need to put off our unrighteousness and put on the righteousness of God. We need to actively do it. We need to actively pursue it. You know, these things don't make us saved, but because we're saved, we're now free to put these things on and to live our lives in a way that's free of death. You know, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? You know, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law that we die because of sin. You know, just because we get sick doesn't mean that we sinned. You know, I went out and I cut off some old lady in the parking lot, and now I'm going to get a cold. You know, it doesn't really work that way. But sin is in the world. I mean, sickness is in the world because sickness leads to death. And death is in the world because sin is in the world. Because ultimately, God said, don't eat from that tree because in that day you eat it, you're going to die. Satan says, you're not going to die. And they ate and they didn't die right away, but spiritually they died and eventually they would die. Because sin is here. But we don't need to be tied down by it. Yes, our bodies will die one day. You may get cancer. You may get sick. You may get run over by a bus. I don't know how we're going to die one day. Maybe the Lord will come back and we won't have to experience physical death. But the reality is, is that we're dying. But we don't have to be bound by it. You know, we can get older to a point where we don't have a life to live anymore. We're stuck in an old age home maybe when we're older. I don't know what's going to be the case for you and I. But we're going to be free. That we can be stuck in that old age home as hard as it may be. I can't imagine. But we can be free to pray. We can be free to travel. We can be free to live out the dreams God has for us, no matter our physical limitations. You know, we, like these guys said, they didn't even know the language, and they spoke the language. I had some friends who went to Mexico on a missions trip last year. They didn't speak Spanish, and they were in a community, and they started speaking Spanish. I know it sounds weird, and I go, that's probably a little weird. <laughs> you know, I wish I learned Spanish in high school. But they began to speak it when they needed it. And God begins to do those things. He works those miracles. But there's victory over death, guys. There's sin, there's corrupted life through, and there's victory over death, sin, and a corrupted life through Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's the message of the Holy Spirit, guys. The Holy Spirit is never going to come to us and teach us anything else. I mean, we're going to learn, hopefully, if we spend time with the Lord throughout our lives, we're going to learn a lot about the Scripture, a lot about how it works together. You know, we'll have our theology and our doctrine in order and different things about different languages, Greek and Hebrew, if you study the Bible. But the whole point of it is that we would know Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't want us to get to heaven and be really smart and not know Jesus. He doesn't want to get us so educated that we go out into the world and we don't introduce people to Jesus. He wants people to know Jesus. And that's always the message of God, to know Jesus. Not to say, look at how great I am because I speak in tongues. Or, look at how great I am because I speak forth future events. No, it's look at how great Jesus is and how much he loves us. Amen? Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. 
And that, God, it's true and we can be free from sin and death, Lord, because you're free from it. And that, God, the reason why we're Christians is because of the resurrection. That, God, we can put our faith in something that's happened already. And, in fact, still happening today, you're still resurrected. You're still alive. And, Lord, I pray that each of us, by your spirit, will be filled. And, God, give us power for that new life this week. That we would be willing to, even in the morning, have our day changed and go through our days differently because of you. Help us this week. And, God, we pray you'd come back soon. We pray you'd be with our family members who are sick, that you would heal them. God, that they would come to know you as uh, the more important healing, that they would be spiritually healed. So, Lord, we ask these things in your name. Bless our day and our friends and our family. But, God, use us, we pray, this week. Help us to spend time with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.